As we continue on our gospel harmony, there are um, three passages that the text comes from this morning. I'm going to read a conflated account where I've just summarized all the material into one. But you can feel free to turn to any of those three passages. Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Or Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. Any three of those. And I will read On that day, Sadducees came to him, denying the resurrection, and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us and said, If someone dies having a wife, but not having children, his brother will marry her as next of kin, for will marry his wife, and raise up a seed for his brother. Accordingly, there were with us seven brothers, and the first, having taken a wife, died childless. And having no seed, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, also the second and the third until the seventh. Now, after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whenever they might rise again, who of the seven will the wife be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Is it not for this reason you have been led astray? not having known the Scriptures nor the power of God. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but the ones considered worthy to obtain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they are not able to die anymore, because they're like angels in heaven and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read the word having been spoken to you by God? In the book of Moses, even Moses revealed in the passage about the bush, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. You're greatly led astray. Having answered, some of the scribes said, Teacher, you have spoken well, for no longer do they dare question him on anything. And having heard, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the nourishment that you provide our souls by the working of the Holy Spirit through your mighty and powerful and enduring, inerrant word. We thank you, Lord, that we can sit here together and worship you and learn more about you. I pray that we would be attentive today, you clear our minds of distractions, that we would be able to focus in both with our minds and our hearts upon who you are and what you have done. May you be honored and glorified this day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I remember as a boy, even after becoming a Christian, being more than a little concerned about dying and going to heaven. I had even been told and had sung a song that went along these lines, heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I'm going to see my Savior's face because heaven is a wonderful place. want to go there. I remember hearing that song. For some reason, the song didn't really endear me to heaven all that much. Yet so many popular constructions of heaven uh, do something of a similar sense, almost make heaven seem strange or odd. Certainly you have seen the depictions of heaven of us floating around on clouds playing harps with chubby cherubs. It sounds just very bizarre, because it is. The way I conceived of heaven didn't sound inviting. It seemed odd and eccentric and wacky. So I tried to not think of it much, and that was a tragedy. Something that ought to have filled my heart with comfort and joy was something that was strange and unsettling to me. Combined with my wrongful thoughts of life in heaven, some phrases that were promulgated through the Christian community that I was in, things like, He was so heavenly-minded, he was no earthly good. You take all of that together, and you have a formula for little to no thinking about the life to come. Sure, I believed in heaven and hell. They were the clear teaching of Scripture, but my thoughts seldom dwelled there. And when a thought did arise regarding that, I pushed it away and 
focused on the tasks at hand. Perhaps also contributing to my wrongful perspective was the deceptiveness of youth. When we're young, we can feel invincible. You might never say that you're invincible, but nonetheless, you live with few thoughts of death. And I believe that's also another massive mistake. Jonathan Edwards, one of the most famous things about him is his resolutions. People remember his resolutions. A lot of those resolutions being written even when he was a younger, young man, older boy. And among those resolutions are several rewordings of the idea of, I will think of my death often. I will think of the life to come often. While I was gone this past Sunday, as many as you know, I traveled to Illinois to see my mom's mom while she was in hospice. The Lord afforded me the privilege of seeing my grandmother a day before she passed away. And I was provided with some very wonderful moments with her. As she lay on the hospital bed and was having some amount of difficulty breathing and eating, she couldn't wait to pass away to go to be with Jesus. You see, she could count her blessings even on her deathbed, and she could smile at death because she had a Savior who could hold her hand through it all. Her relationship with Christ sustained her and caused her to look on death as not the end, but just a means to going to go away to be with Savior, for to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. She was most certainly going to a better, wonderful place. But the imminent approach of death has a sobering effect on anyone. Suddenly, the things that really matter come roaring to center stage. You realize that all of your stuff means nothing. I went to my grandparents' uh, little condo in this retirement community and talking to my grandfather, and he's looking around at things, and he said, all of this stuff just means nothing. It means nothing. None of this is going to go with us anywhere. You realize that even your most sentimental trinkets aren't going with you anywhere. It's all left behind. All of your pictures, all your Facebook pictures, everything is left behind. You don't take any of it with you. You realize power and popularity don't matter, for a dead man isn't able to exercise any power and Even if you're remembered, the chances are you'll be remembered wrongly and everybody will forget the real story and all the rest. Largely due to distance, I hadn't had a lot of time with my grandmother. And so being able to sit at her bedside and to hold her hand and rub her feet and kiss her and pray with her were moments that I'll never forget. And I appreciate you as a congregation allowing me that opportunity. Of all the things that she said, I won't ever forget her telling me, Jess, you've turned into a wonderful young man. And her looking at my mom as she was watching my kids and commenting on how wonderful a grandmother my mom is to my children. You see, my children and mom were there with me and she was intently observing their interaction. My mom and mother-in-law have poured out their lives into my children and it's seen in their relationship. You see, in her last days, it was relationships that really counted. Because while you can't take any stuff with you to heaven, here's really good news. You can take friends with you there. You can take friends with you there. Look it up, Luke 16, 19. We should endeavor to take many friends with us to heaven. With increased age comes more consideration of the life to come. And I know I can't go back and change the way I used to think about heaven when I was younger, but I can begin thinking rightly about heaven now. And I can encourage all of you, no matter what your age is, to think of it rightly as well. I find it so interesting how God's providence attends to even the preaching ministry of a local church. I discovered upon returning that uh, Seth, who had preached last week, preached on the subject of heaven. And here we are in a multi-year series, gospel through the gospels together. And wouldn't you know that we would be here in this passage. This would be the passage that I would meditate on while I was gone. Here's one of the glimpses that the Bible gives us, not only regarding the reality of heaven, but something about the nature of the life to come. So we need to pay attention carefully and 
Consider the implications of what Jesus is saying here. And then consider his teaching in light of the rest of biblical testimony. The Bible has a lot to say about the life to come. It is not so uh, cloudy and unable to be thought of at all. Quite the contrary, there's much to be said. And we'll just kind of hit the tip of the iceberg here this morning. The pastor we come to involves a group of religious leaders, this time some Sadducees, who are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. There is no hope. Their error has a lot to do with my own personal error. Because it boils down to at least two problems which we need to consider this morning. So in a sermon entitled, Undervaluing Heaven, I want to consider the two most prominent problems that people have when considering the reality and the nature of the resurrection. So what are the two gargantuan problems that stand between us understanding and knowing aright the reality of the resurrection and the nature of the resurrection? I boil down to these two things, and Jesus points them both out to this rebellious group of religious leaders. First is underestimating God's power, underestimating God's power, and second is disregarding God's word. I might actually flip those two around for our discussion purposes here and consider disregarding God's word first. But disregarding God's word, underestimating God's power. But before we can consider those two problems, I need to give you a little bit of the context behind what's going on here, especially since it's been a couple of weeks since we've looked at this together. We're in the middle of the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he's in Jerusalem and he's under attack. We're in the midst of observing Jesus respond to a barrage of questions that are coming at him from religious leaders who are bent on Jesus' destruction and his demise. All of the big guns are coming out here to put Jesus to the test. They believe that surely someone will have the ace question. They'll be able to introduce some sort of error or illegality to Jesus' otherwise impeccable, flawless ministry. So one by one, each of the main established religious groups come up to bat with a devilish question intended to trip Jesus up. Even though each group among these groups would disagree on the matters they're talking about, they put away aside all of their differences in hopes of destroying one who they all had vested interest in discrediting. We've already watched them fail to introduce doubt into Jesus' authority. Jesus' unique authority had been seen in everything that he said and did. He healed the sick. He freed the demon-possessed. He fed the multitudes with a few loaves and fish. He gave sight to the blind. He restored the dead. He resurrected the dead, better said. These things the religious leaders had not been doing. And Jesus' unique authority had been demonstrated in a number of other ways as well, like through the voice of his forerunner, John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah, declaring the coming of the Lord, the one whom these religious leaders didn't want to make a public comment on because they knew that it would cause problems for themselves. But not only that, but speaking of John the Baptist would surely bring to mind Jesus' own public baptism. At which time, not only is John there recognizing that I'm not worthy to even untie the thong of your sandal, you should be baptizing me, not me, you. But then we have this voice from heaven, God the Father declaring, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus had authority. He had unique authority. One that was recognized by all who listened to him and all who interacted with him. And the Sanhedrin couldn't discredit him on that account. So a second attempt is made. The Pharisees send a group of disciples to pose as followers of Jesus with a question with devious intent. They ask Jesus to provide counsel on whether it's lawful, whether it's scripturally permissible, to pay taxes to Caesar. Caesar, who we all know is a pagan king who even went so far as to claim titles of deity for himself. They also make sure that there's a group of Herodians there in the crowd present, so that way, no matter what Jesus says, he can be reported and used against him. They feel like they have him up to a rock in a hard place. No matter how he answers, we're going to discredit him here. They attempt to flatter Jesus and catch him off guard in an off-guarded moment, but Jesus' response to them thwarts their plan. Jesus reads the intent of their hearts, and he first addresses them as hypocrites. <laughs> he says, hypocrites, show me a coin. They pass him a coin. Jesus asks, whose image and inscription is on this Roman denarius? And they say, well, it's, it's Caesar's. He says, give him his coin. Pay what's owed him. 
Yet Jesus adds, also give to God what is owed God. With elegance, Jesus unhinges their trap and leaves them astonished. The priests, Pharisees, Herodians had struck out. So now the Sadducees come up to the plate. And just so you know, we got some lawyers sitting on deck ready to come soon. The Sadducees must have heard Jesus teach affirmatively on the subject of the resurrection, a doctrine which the Sadducees did not believe in. So they come hoping to discredit discredit Jesus with a scenario that they believe makes the resurrection sound absurd. They're making use of a tool in logic called the reductio ad absurdum to reduce something to absurdity. The argument is aimed at showing that if you hold this premise to be true, it will land in an unavoidable problem, an unavoidable absurdity. So therefore, since it's so absurd, the previous premise must be false. That's the idea. And they come addressing Jesus here yet again as teacher. This is such an ironic title for them to address Jesus with. I mean, they want nothing more than to discredit him as a teacher. Yet they go, teacher, teach us this. To more fully understand what's going on here, you need to know a couple things about the Sadducees. You see, they held the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, to be God's word. And they did not doubt its authority or authenticity. But the rest of the Old Testament, they discounted. And the same could be said for the rabbinical oral tradition. The Sadducees held to the first five books of the Bible. The rest of it they had doubts about and they completely stood away from any of the rabbinical oral tradition, which put them at quite big odds with the Pharisees, right? Pharisees who held to all of the Old Testament and included the oral traditions of the, of the rabbis. So they only held to the first five books. They downplayed everything spiritual as well. They not only denied the resurrection and therefore the existence of heaven and hell, but they also denied the existence of angels and demons. Also an important thing to note when we see Jesus' response regarding the resurrection and who we will be like. The third thing to mention about them is that they were wealthy. They were high-ranking religious officials who had been afforded a whole lot of authority by Rome. And therefore, they were pro-Roman, at least as so far as to make sure that their bread stayed buttered, you know, <laughs> making sure that everything stayed in place. So they were pro-Roman as far as it took to make sure that they maintained their power structure. Now, we don't hear much from the Sadducees in the Gospels. We have like one occasion before this where they ask about a sign from heaven. But other than that, they're pretty much silent. We don't see recorded interactions with the Sadducees. There's a whole lot with the Pharisees, right? But not much with the Sadducees. So one of the questions that comes to my mind is, why is this showdown happening now? Why now? What's, what's caused them to all of a sudden go, we're interested in bringing some discredit to Jesus? Well, I think if we remember the events of this immediate week, it becomes quite apparent. Just a couple of days ago, Jesus had entered into the temple complex. And lo and behold, what did he find in the outer court? Money changers. And all kinds of sacrifices being sold. He says, my father's house, which is to be a house of prayer for the nations, you have turned into a marketplace, a bazaar. Matter of fact, he says, it's a robber's den. You've taken a place that is supposed to be known to the nations as a place of prayer, and you've made it into something where you make a buck. And not only honestly, dishonestly make a buck. And he is filled with holy indignation. He turns over the money changers' tables, and he pushes everyone out of, out of the outer court of the temple. Now, he does this. What week is this? Passover week. This is like, you know, Christmas for a retail store, right? This is the most lucrative time of the year. Everyone's coming for Passover. Everybody's got to buy their stuff. This is where we make our money. And Jesus comes in, one man, and his voice and his action clear the temple. Who is profiting off of this, these exchanges? The Sadducees. You see, most of their wealth was afforded by the result of being able to exercise control over the temple complex. They profited off of this unholy situation. 
You see, the Pharisees had been gunning at Jesus for some time because they were the popular group. I mean, they were the, the group of the masses. Most people felt very disconnected from the Sadducees, but the Pharisees were a little bit more popular with the masses. Well, Jesus gains quite a following in his ministry, and the Pharisees are quite concerned about that. But the Sadducees' concern doesn't really get evoked until Jesus hits at the source of their wealth, and they can no longer remain silent. The situation in my mind brings back to a similarity in church history to the days leading up to the Reformation. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Martin Luther had done quite a bit of reforming teaching and doctrine prior to the Reformation beginning in earnest. Before he ever nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, he had written, for example, the 97 Theses. And in those, he denounced all kinds of unbiblical principles that Rome and the Pope were engaged in. But it's not until he nails those 95 pieces to the church door in Wittenberg that all of a sudden he evokes the rage of Rome and the Pope. Why? Well, because among other things, he denounced the system of indulgences that the Roman Catholic Church was involved in. They had people peddling around the countryside throughout Europe, selling people for money, reduced time in purgatory, either for themselves or for their friends, loved ones, neighbors, all the rest. And so as soon as Martin Luther nails us to the door and denounces those practices as unbiblical and ungodly. And people stop coming and paying for indulgences. And now, St. Peter's Basilica and all the rest associated with it are not getting the revenue that they used to have. Now Martin Luther has gone too far. And the rest is history. Rome would make many attempts on Luther's life. God would providentially maintain Luther's life given the ability to not only push forward the Reformation in earnest, but probably do what's the most notable thing of his life, and that is to translate the Bible into German so that the common man could read the Bible. And we see the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, begin in earnest. The Sadducees come to Jesus with a supposed conflict between the doctrine of the resurrection, which they didn't believe in, and Moses' command of liberate marriage, found in Deuteronomy 25. It's summarized here by them. If someone dies having a wife but no children, his brother is to marry her and raise up for, her, uh, for, for him, for his deceased brother, a seed. They explain then to Jesus. So there was with us seven brothers. The first, having taken a wife, died childless. Having no seed, his brother took her, but then he died before having children with her as well. This pattern repeated itself through seven brothers, each one having taken the same woman as wife, and each one dying before ever having any children. And then after all that, the woman died. So they posed this question. Whose wife will the woman be in the resurrection, since all seven brothers had had her as wife? They tell the story as if it were real. Do you note that? There was among us seven brothers. They, they put this forward in public setting as if this was something they were struggling with in their own personal ministry. However, the situation sounds mighty peculiar. I'm sure that an actuary could demonstrate just how much the odds are against such a situation actually having occurred. And although leverant marriage was still uphold, held formally, it was seldom practiced, especially at this time in history. The only two examples we have of it actually playing out in the Old Testament, on both occasions, the next of kin is reluctant to actually follow through with it. Read this up. Genesis 38, you'll see one of those occasions, and then over in Ruth 4. Both occasions, the next of kin is reluctant to actually fulfill the obligation that was put upon them. So if that was the case back, back then, I'm telling you at this point, this was not something that was generally being practiced. But wouldn't the situation as to whose wife will she be in the resurrection have been just as perplexing should she have only had had two husbands? Or if the husbands had been unrelated? I mean, isn't the question the same? I mean, whether she was divorced, then remarried, or, or had a spouse that died and then married another man, does it, does it really need seven iterations? Do they need to be brothers? Does it need to be as a result of uh, leverate marriage? You see, the question is an interesting one. Should anyone be married to more than one person due to whatever reason? Whose spouse would a remarried person be in the resurrection? 
The question could have also been posed in a way in which a man marries again and again after the death of each wife. So in other words, we have we flip it around. It could have been a man who had married and then his wife died and then married again and his wife died and married again and his wife died. And the question could have been posed, whose husband will he be in the resurrection since each wife had had him as her husband? Why is this posed this way? This is not an accident, my friends. It is very purposeful. You have to see the devious intent involved. You see, within even the public discourse, there, there's certainly knowledge of Old Testament situations in which men were married to multiple women. There's examples of polygamy in the Old Testament. But there are no situations listed in the Old Testament of polyandry, of a woman with multiple husbands. You see, this question is posed exactly as it is, not only because of the logical conundrum that presents anyone who's been married multiple times, but for the emotional impact of such a scenario. They're saying it like this. Imagine polyandry for eternity. It's meant to evoke some snickers, some laughter from the people that are there. Imagine seven brothers duking it out in the resurrection for their wife. The idea of the problem is that such an absurd situation Wouldn't it just be ready, better to not be raised at all? That's their point. This situation arises because of the belief in the resurrection. We can do away with the whole problem if just we're never raised from the dead. Just let the dead be dead. And then we don't have absurd situations like this. J.C. Ryle comments on just the overarching kind of idea of the passage, and he says, Absurd, skeptical objections to biblical truths are ancient things. He says, this has been happening for a long time. Have you ever been engaged in a conversation with someone who brings up the most absurd, crazy scenario, and they use that to try to discount what is very plainly and clearly the teaching of Scripture? That's what we have going on here. Beware of questions built upon hypothetical scenarios, and don't be surprised when they arise. But as before, Jesus is ready to answer this question He's ready to show just how mistaken they are. You see, what Jesus is going to demonstrate is that the problem is not in the resurrection, but in the Sadducees' refusal to recognize God's power and acknowledge God's word on the subject. They know neither God's power nor God's word. He says, isn't it for this reason you've been led astray? It can also be translated, instead of in the passive sense, it can be translated, that verb can be translated in the middle. So in other words... Isn't it for this reason you've led yourselves astray? Isn't this why you guys are wandering about, not having known the Scriptures nor the power of God? He goes on to describe what he means by both of those little phrases. But don't miss the overall impact of Jesus' immediate response. You have to put yourself in the crowd watching this showdown happen. He just told the most politically powerful religious leaders, that they don't have a clue when it comes to knowing God's ability and knowing God's word. That's what he just told them. He says, you've led yourselves astray. You've traveled away from the truth. It's one thing to be told that you're lacking in some areas and need to improve. I'm certain we've all had those moments. Maybe it's in the context of marriage in which one spouse is telling the other, I really need some help in this and I see some areas for improvement in your life, right? We might have varying levels of receptivity to that at times, right? But we need to receive that, and we've got to be thankful for that sharpening that can happen. Maybe at your job you had a performance evaluation, and you were told that here's some things that need to be adjusted or improved. As much as we hate admitting our faults, we ought to be thankful for the correction when it comes. But I I think we would all agree there is no rebuke that hits harder than the one that is aimed at the very core of who we think we are. You comment on my sense of style, I admit it's horrible, okay? I don't have much issue with that. But tell a pastor that he's completely off in his preaching, that he doesn't know the Bible, and he doesn't know the power of the Holy Spirit. Make a statement like that, and that will just unsell you to the core. This statement coming from Jesus himself, he looks right into their minds and hearts and says, here's the problem, guys. 
you're completely wandering in the dark. You don't know the Bible. You don't know God's word. And you don't know what God is like. You don't know his power. You don't know his power and you don't know his word. It's like stripping the stars off of a general's jacket, right? Just right there in front of them. He dresses them down. Now, let's disregard God's word just as the Sadducees did. You see, the Old Testament spoke on the resurrection. This isn't some isolated doctrine. It's lack of knowledge of the scriptures that has brought them to a horrid consequence. Just because the Sadducees quote scripture doesn't mean that they're familiar with them. Perhaps you have been here yourself or you have experienced a relationship with someone else who is able to quote scripture and pose questions and problems and sound quite biblically literate. But they're really, in the end, unknowledgeable of the scriptures, ignorant of what they teach. I'm with an individual this past week. His name will remain anonymous, obviously. But in talking with the individual person quoting scripture left and right, and I know from what I know about the individual and what's going on, his life screams all the opposite. It's all a facade. It's all a sham. Jesus cuts right through all of that. He says, one of the primary problems here is you don't know God's word. You see, God hasn't left us without knowledge of himself or of his ways. And certainly something like the resurrection does not go without witness. Here's a couple of notable texts you can look up later on. Daniel 12, verse 2. There it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's a pretty clear statement, huh? There's going to be a resurrection from the dead, and there's going to be a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. That's as clear as it could be. I mean, that sounds just like New Testament understanding of the resurrection. There it is, Daniel 12, 2. Isaiah 26, 19. The, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You will lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for the dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. The dead will live. The corpses will rise. Psalm 19, or 16, sorry. Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now, understand that a lot of these passages also have messianic fervor and prophetic nature to them, but also re- relates to a scenario of the, of the day as well. He says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Forever. How do you experience pleasures forever without a resurrection? You go, wait, 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 wait. Jess, didn't you tell us at the start that one of the big issues with the Sadducees is that they, didn't, they discounted all those books. I mean, you mentioned books from the prophets and from the writings. None of those were from the first five books, the books of Moses. So, what does Jesus do? He provides an elegant lesson. He asks them, have you not read what God said in the book of Moses? He takes them to task from the part of the Old Testament that they didn't object to. He could have picked any other place, but he picks a passage from the first five books of the Bible. Good lesson here for us too, huh? If someone discounts other parts of the Bible, well, we believe that all of the Bible is God-breathed and inspired, right? Profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, ready for every good work. We believe that every jot and tittle of the Scriptures is valid. He takes them straight to the books of the law. He takes them to the Torah. He takes them to the books of Moses. In a, in a sense, it's like Jesus is saying, huh, funny you should mention Moses. Funny you should mention him and his command regarding lever at marriage. Have you read what God said to Moses in that passage about the bush? Remember, there are no verse references. So you couldn't say, you know, in Exodus chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6, you know. He couldn't say that. There were no verse references then. But I still think that the construction of it is just like a, a beautiful example of understatement. And how understatement can have just such a compelling nature to it. Surely, not merely the religious leaders, but every Israelite would be familiar with Moses and the burning bush. 
I mean, if there's ever a story that would be known to the Israelites, it would be Moses and the burning bush. Jesus says, have you ever read uh, the book of Moses? You know, that part about the bush. Have you read that section? Have you seen what was said there? Or you just got done saying, you don't know the scriptures. And so he's going to take them to task, and the passage which surely they were familiar with. He says, I don't need to travel to Daniel 12 too. I have to go to Psalm 16 or Isaiah. How about Exodus? Jesus replies. How about Exodus? Well, we don't know how Jesus said this. Obviously, it's just my imagination considering how he said it. I think there was a note of sarcastic humor going on here. They're trying to use the humor of an absurd situation to make Jesus look the fool. Jesus turns it around. He says, you know what, guys? Funny you talk about Moses. What about the passage of Moses in the burning bush? Have you considered that passage as it relates to the resurrection? You see, when Moses heard the Lord identify himself, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for years. They had been dead to Moses, but they weren't dead to God. This is how God can refer to himself, first of all, as the I am. And as he referred to himself that way to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he wouldn't refer to himself then as the God of non-existent beings. Jesus' point is this. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. God will not leave any of his children in the grave, but will rise them up and bring them home makes me think of our practice in the United States, you know, in general. We had this, uh, mentioning this with TETM, about them signing off on a death certificate that if they're in an area where they can't get a body back, if they are died in the line of, you know, service to Christ, martyred for the faith in an in a indigenous, you know, people group far away from home, unable to bring the body back, that they sign in advance that that might be just the case and they can't bring the body home. We know that in our American military, should someone die in service, that there is a concern that we bring the body home, that that body might receive a proper burial. I find it interesting that with God, he brings his sons up from the grave to make sure that they receive a proper homecoming. He will not allow any of his children to remain in the grave. God wouldn't make an everlasting covenant with children who would not live after death. Think about that. Why does God make an everlasting covenant with Abraham? Isaac, Jacob, why do that with David? If once they died, it wouldn't matter anymore. You see, some explain that the whole purpose of this statement, that the whole point that Jesus is making, rests on the tense of the verb. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Instead of it saying, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The only problem with saying that the whole argument rests on a linguistic case is if you look at the Hebrew the verb is not there. It's not present. You're, we're supplying the am. It's I of Jacob, of you know, God, of Jacob, of Isaac, of um, Abraham. So I don't think Jesus' point is just resting on the tense of a verb, although it could. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think his point is in connection with who God is, the ever-living one. And to know the living God and have relationship with the living God who makes an everlasting covenant with his children certainly then means that God will take then that relationship and bring that individual into everlasting fellowship with himself. His promise extends beyond the grave. That's what Jesus is saying. This God made promises to our forefathers, made promises that he'll keep even beyond their death. Even when they die, he's still keeping his promises to them. Listen to Hebrews 11. All these died in faith without having received the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. If God has declared himself to be the great I am, and then he identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then certainly these individuals are not dead and forgotten, but are still the beneficiaries of God's love, mercy, and grace. When the eternal God 
establishes an everlasting covenant with mortal men, those men are gifted with life beyond the grave. Because that's who God is. He's the God of the living. Jesus says, you failed to contemplate a passage which you should be so familiar with. The second problem, though, that besets the Sadducees and besets us as well is that we underestimate God's power. We underestimate God's power. And we can maybe further break that down by considering, first of all, how we suffer from an earthly mindset. We suffer from an earthly mindset. The idea behind the Sadducees' scenario is to show that living after the resurrection is absurd for an untold number of problems then arise. But you see, the problem is not with the resurrection. The problem is with the Sadducees' low view of God's power and a too earthly view of what is yet to come. They're thinking of what is yet to come in too earthly of categories. Misperceptions of the life to come may have come in part to poor explanations by the Pharisees. Now, recognize the Sadducees and Pharisees were always kind of bickering with one another, fighting about stuff. And this is one of the big hotbed subjects. And we know that, besides just this text, because Paul uses it to his advantage later on, right? Because when he's arrested, he says, I'm here as a result of believing the resurrection. And that instantly causes a huge divide among the crowds. Because you've got Sadducees and Pharisees, and they fight on that issue. All of a sudden, they're up at arms about it. Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but they had some strange beliefs about the resurrection. Kind of similar to us floating around on clouds like chubby cherubs, you know, similar to that sort of thing. Let me, let me just, um, Alfred Edersheim mentions a couple. He says, some argued that men would rise in the same clothes that they were buried in. Others argued that men would rise with the same defects that they had in this life so they could be healed afterward, so there wouldn't be any confusion as to who that person was. We always knew him as a cripple, so he needs to raise as a cripple and then be healed, so we're not confused about who he was when he was raised. Oh, this one's got to take the cake, though. Some argue that there were great cavities within the ground, through which bodies, once they were buried, would roll through the cavities to make sure that they rose from the Holy Land. (laughs) They would come up in Jerusalem. These are mixing around some stuff like that. And after a while, it's just like, this is just strange and odd, bizarre. So while the Pharisees were right regarding the reality of the resurrection, they were quite wrong on the nature of the resurrection. And they made all of these uninformed guesses about its nature. And what they ended up doing is surrounding an elegant, glorious truth with needless, groundless additions, which deprived belief in the resurrection of its simple glory. They made it much more complex and weird and strange than it ever was to be. What a great example of how we need to stick to God's word and not add to it. Can I just say, there are some things that God has chosen not to reveal. They are not for us or our sons. Now, the things that are revealed are for us and our sons forever. The things not revealed are God's. You know, it's the glory of a man to reveal a thing. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. There are things that God conceals and does not tell us about. Rather than trying to make guesses and suppositions about what that might be, perhaps it would be better if we just stuck to the clear, plain teachings of Scripture. Not perhaps, it would be better. You see, we don't need to know every detail to believe what God has said. Okay, so while I was, I have to make a confession. While I was up in Rockford, I uh, went two times to Stockholm Inn to get their Swedish pancakes. They are absolutely out of this world. And my wife will also agree to that. I think my children will as well. They're absolutely amazing. But let's say that tomorrow I said, Ashlyn, Joel, we're, gonna, we're going to go and take a trip to Sweden to get some authentic Swedish pancakes. And I made that statement. Now, they don't need to know all of the details to believe that we are indeed going. I'm going to take care of the details They don't have to have all those things disclosed to prove that we are indeed going to Sweden. The situation is similar to this situation, which the Sadducees are engaged in. It's similar to my children saying to me, I reject the idea that we're traveling to Sweden 
Because I don't see any bridge that goes across the ocean. There's no bridge that goes across the ocean, so there's no way we're going to Sweden. They might laugh at the absurdity of building a bridge. <laughs> Can you imagine building a bridge all the way across to Sweden? You see, if my children can trust me with the details, because my intention is not to drive but to fly, how much more can we trust the Lord with the details? If he has said that it's going to happen, it will come to pass. Those things he's revealed by all means, let's treasure them, let's know them, let's let's dig into them, know them, and meditate upon them. But the things he has not revealed, let's leave them that way and not make guesses. And then, therefore, make something strange and bizarre. When in reality, something elegant and marvelous and something that will go beyond our wildest dreams anyway. You see, what God has in store in the resurrection is something that is out of this world or perhaps above and beyond this world. Or as Lewis would say, further up and further in, right? Something much, much greater. Daniel Doriani says, humans cannot reverse death, but the power of God can do better than reverse death. God doesn't merely reverse death. He doesn't resuscitate. He resurrects. And he transforms. You see, God created a world, and he made Adam and Eve. He fashioned them and fitted them for the garden and life here. So in the resurrection, God will provide us with new bodies that are fitted to the new heavens and the new earth. God's power will fit us for eternal life. We're going to be like the angels. I mentioned this earlier. Remember, this is another little jab. They don't believe in angels and demons. (laughs) Jesus says, you don't know God's power. You don't know the scriptures. There is a resurrection. It's not like what you think. We're going to be like the angels. Oh, yeah, another group you don't believe in. Because you don't believe in God's power and you don't believe in God's word. We're going to be like the angels. Note here, analogy. Like the angels, not angels. Angels. (laughs) Angels. <laughs> we don't become chubby cherubs. Praise the Lord. We don't, we don't become... Oh, the angels even exist. Anyway. You know, uh, chubby, at least. Um, I'm so thankful that God has provided us here with an analogy. He says there's a sense in which our existence then will be like the way that angels exist now. But note, we do not become angels. How is God's power seen in the resurrection? Well, Jesus explains that the resurrection is something quite different from what is being assumed. The failure of the Sadducees is that they think too lowly of what God has in store. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard have not entered the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. Think about that. That's 1 Corinthians 2.9. Let's meditate on that for just a minute. So, what does God have prepared for those who love him? Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard things that have not even entered into the heart of man. God has things in store. He has a whole lot of surprises. Anybody like surprises? He has surprises in store. Things that we have not heard or seen or even entered into our heart for those who love Him. You see, they hadn't even begun to consider the beauty and grandeur of the resurrection because their view was too sensual a view that was promulgated by their contemporaries. I wonder if we have done any disservice to this doctrine by a similar means, thinking far too lowly of God's power to transform us in the resurrection. Jesus exposes just how far off the Sadducees are. They attempt to disprove the resurrection on the basis of the never-ending nature of marriage. Jesus is quick to explain that marriage ends at death. Now, this is what's so interesting about it. The Sadducees have to admit that. Why? Because they're advocating remarriage to the woman. She couldn't marry another man if her marriage with the previous man was still ongoing. That'd be adultery. So at death, the marriage ceases. The marriage is over. We even say it in our traditional vows, right? Till death do us part. The marriage continues until death. And at death, the marriage is rendered asunder. In the resurrection, Jesus says, there is no more death. And he says, no one marries nor is given in marriage. Now, this is interesting as it relates to the purpose of lever at marriage as well. The idea in that marriage scenario was to make sure that a man's name continued. 
right? So I died before myself and my wife had a child. So my brother comes in to make sure that my name, so the child that is born, the first child, is supposed to be my seed. He carries my name. My brother does this for me, so my name isn't blotted out from the earth. That's the idea of it. Well, in heaven, do you have to have that concern anymore? There is no death, Jesus says. There's no death in the resurrection. After we've been raised to life, there is no more death. You don't need leave marriage anymore. Because the Lord's sustaining a man's life. There's no need for it anymore. You see, Jesus has actually answered the very heart of the reason for that commandment. Well, they're completely missing the point. You see, what God is doing in the resurrection is not a reproduction of the old world, but an utter renovation or a better, uh, a recreation. God's power will be displayed in a glorious transformation. Now, don't get me wrong. There's going to be continuity with this life. It's not going to be so different that it's completely bizarre that way. There will be significant difference between now and the life to come, but the difference will be better in every respect. Every difference that is noted will be a better difference. It will be for better things. For example, we know they'll be eating in that new heavens and new earth. For we're told that we're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19.9. Yet we're also told that there will be no longer any hunger and no thirst, Revelation 7.16. So we're going to feast and never be hungry. We're going to drink and never thirst. We're going to rest, but there's going to be no weariness. We have a hard time sometimes getting our mind around that. What does that look like? How do we even conceive of that? We know there will be singing in heaven. Hopefully I'll have recreated better vocal cords, right? You know, that, that sort of thing. We'll, have, we'll, we'll be given the ability to sing in heaven. We see that going on. So let's further consider Jesus' words. He then says there is no marriage in heaven. I, I can't close the sermon without addressing this. Jesus' particular correction to the Sadducees is that there's no marriage at all in heaven. Their question is faulty due to faulty presupposition. Marriage to one's spouse comes to a conclusion at death. But this passage is unsettling to a lot of people. But let me say and argue that the reason why it's unsettling is for the same reason that I was worried about heaven when I was a boy. The unsettling nature comes from my underestimation of God's power seen in the resurrection. It's because of two low views of what God is going to do. What God has in store for His children is something better. Now, this is not to say that marriage on earth is bad, just that it's imperfect. Earthly marriage was never designed by God to be eternal. It was designed to be a temporary institution to bear witness to a far greater reality. It's meant to provide a picture, a glimpse to the watching world of the relationship that exists between Christ and His bride, the church. Because you see, there is only one marriage that exists throughout eternity, and that is the marriage of Jesus Christ to His church, to His bride, the church. Well, all experience the everlasting joy, if you're in Christ, of being married to a perfect spouse. All of us will. One who has never let us down. One who will provide for us forever and ever. Who is always faithful. Isn't it sad that false religions and cults just completely mess this whole thing up? Mormons, for example, completely ignore Jesus' words here when they seek to have their marriages bound for eternity. They promulgate the idea that these eternal marriages then become the basis of the procreation of spirit babies by which they can then populate other planets and become gods of. There's Mormon doctrine for you. Muslims speak of dying and going, being granted 72 virgins in the afterlife. But besides just being super strange and false, the real tragedy in these teachings is that they fail to recognize that the ultimate marriage, the eternal bond we should look to, is the one with Jesus. There will be everlasting joy with Him. Jesus is our joy and our happiness. Romance with Jesus never disappoints. But still some well-meaning Christians may be concerned because all they can think of is, I have a wonderful, intimate marriage with my spouse. 
that mean I'm going to experience loss in heaven? Again, I just want to push forward this idea. Those feelings exist only because we think of the closeness of a godly, Christ-centered marriage as being unparalleled. But you see, what God has in store for for us in heaven is something beyond our wildest imagination. He'll give us beyond anything we could ever ask or think. Marriage is meant to give a picture of what it is to be lost in intimacy with Jesus. An intimacy that we can experience here, but we'll experience in fullness in the life to come. See, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will know and enjoy relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ from all over the world, throughout all of time, in a way that we never did here on earth. Just think about it. What is it that makes relationships sometimes cold and stagnant and distant and hard and difficult? What makes that that way? It's sin. Why do we have trouble trusting other, people's in, other people in relationships? It's because we've been hurt and we've been betrayed and we've been laughed at. But in heaven, sin is gone. Relationships will be purified by Jesus We'll enjoy relationships as we never have enjoyed relationships. In other words, love and relationship will not take on a lesser significance in heaven, but a greater one. A broadening of love will be experienced. We won't be left sad in heaven. Relationships won't be exclusive because everyone will be perfectly related to one another. We'll have perfect harmony and union with one another in Christ. Remember, God created marriage. He made it. And it's absolutely absurd to think that in eternal life, God has in store for us something lesser than what we've experienced here. You see, that's that kind of faulty misunderstanding of God's power and what He's going to do in the resurrection. The life to come is not a lowering of relationship, but a heightening of relationship into the fullness of being united to Christ and one big family. It's the truest of homecomings. It's the ultimate welcome. It's the ultimate acceptance. Nothing compares to it. Have to share a couple of quotes from two gentlemen that I think so highly of on many levels, but especially as they speak to issues of marriage and of heaven. Randy Alcorn says this. Buy his book, Heaven, and read it cover to cover. Receiving a glorified body and relocating to the new earth doesn't erase history. It culminates history. Nothing will negate or minimize the fact that we were members of families on the old earth. Heaven will not be without families, but we'll be one big family in which all family members are friends and all friends are family members. We'll take, we, we can't take material things with us when we die, but we do take friendships to heaven and one day they'll be renewed. You see, in this age, some of us are married, some of us are not. In the coming age, in one sense, none of us will be married. And in another sense, all of us will be married. All of us will be married to Jesus, the true match made in heaven. See, all that marriage will be so completely satisfying that even the most wonderful earthly marriage couldn't be as fulfilling. Earthly marriage is a shadow. It's a copy. It's an echo of the true, ultimate marriage. So marriage is supposed to be a sign that points us to heaven, not a means to replace heaven. I can't allow the value of any gift, even as great as marriage is, to ever eclipse the value of the giver. All of this is meant to point our focus and attention to him. John Piper says, marriage is a momentary gift. Say it again, marriage is a momentary gift. It may last a lifetime, Or it may be snatched away on the honeymoon. Either way, it is short. Either way, it's short. My grandparents were married 67 years before my grandmother passed away. Either way, it's short. What is 67 years in comparison with eternity? Sometimes we get so wrapped up on that issue of marriage. It's a gift. Be thankful for it. It has its place. It is not penultimate. God is a relationship with him the marriage to come is the one we should be focused upon the partial will pass into the perfect very soon the shadow will give way to reality 
The foretaste will lead to the banquet. The troubled path will end in paradise. A hundred candlelit evenings will come to their consummation in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this momentary marriage will be swallowed up in life. Christ will be all in all. And the purpose of marriage will be complete. It's such an economy of words. Jesus has again answered what was considered an unanswerable question. And the people are left in awe. Some scribes that are sitting there go, He's spoken well. (laughs) They can't help but admit the beauty of what Jesus has just said. The Sadducees don't dare question him him any further. There's no mention of them repenting. They're just stubborn and they refuse and they retreat. They just disregarded God's word in the scriptures just as they're disregarding now the word of God in the flesh. In closing, I want to just consider who it is that will be raised up to life after death. You see, in one sense, everyone is raised up from the grave. But not all will be raised to resurrection of life. Jesus explained in John 5. We had this read this morning. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed from death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. You see, no matter what, everyone will be raised. But without Jesus, it will be a resurrection of judgment. This is because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If you don't have him, then you don't have forgiveness and you don't have eternal life. So the wrath of God remains upon you. So how do you ensure that you will experience resurrection of life and not resurrection of judgment? Well, Jesus says here in this passage, those counted worthy attain to that age. Those counted worthy. Those will be the sons of the resurrection, the sons of God. Now note that those attaining resurrection don't earn their place. They are counted worthy. They are, another word for this is considered worthy. How can they be considered worthy when all of us are sinners? How can we be considered worthy? How can we be counted worthy? Because of what Jesus has done on behalf of his bride. He's washed his bride to church. He's washed her clean by laying down his life in her stead. Worthiness is not something that we earn or deserve, but something that God graciously gives. It's something God declares us to be because of what his son has done on our behalf. The message of the gospel is truly good news because it says that what we couldn't do, and that is the good works that would make us fitting, fitted for heaven and not doing any of the evil things that would bring judgment to ourselves. The thing that we couldn't do by making ourselves right with God, God has done in His Son, Jesus. He has accomplished what we could not. That's where a Christian's hope and security rests. It's found in Christ alone. To be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. To be counted worthy because of belief in Jesus. What He has done on my behalf. Here's one last final meditation on the life to come. Here's my plea. If you're lost, if you're still dead in sins, You will be raised from the dead, but it will be to a resurrection of judgment. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And He is rightfully, righteously angry with us. We're sinners. We're we're rebels. We deserve hell. But God is a gracious God who has provided salvation through His Son. He entreats you to repent of your sin and trust in His Son. If you do then you can come to experience heaven, the new heavens and the new earth as it's described in Revelation 21. And I close with these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for glorious truths of what is yet to come. I know we haven't been furnished every detail, but You have given us sufficient detail. You've given us detail for hope and joy. Thank You as we consider the life to come. It's not something so out there that it's strange or bizarre. Something connected with this life, and yet above and beyond it. Help us, free us from low views of Your power, low views of the resurrection. Grant us high views, great understanding of Your power and Your provision. Give us trust in Your Word. You are a faithful God. You, you always follow through with everything that You say. And thank You, Lord, that all of this crescendos in one grand ultimate marriage in heaven between Jesus and His bride, the church. May we look forward to that, anticipate that, and make it our life's goal to tell others of that great marriage. May our lives bear witness to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the need for all men to repent and trust in Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.